This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week, card number 97, Scott Gerelts, pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. Okay, Scott Gerelts, and why did we choose Scott today? We chose Scott Gerelts this week because we have only talked about two Giants thus far, Hackman Leonard and Rick Russell. To fill in some more San Francisco players, I decided to pick Scott Gerelts mostly because I wasn't really aware of of his background or, or, or much about him at all. What we have here is a hard-throwing all-star, National League ERA leader, an important part of the 1989 World Series team, and an Illinois connection, so you know we love that. Fantastic. Well, let's go to the front of 97 there, and here we have Scott. He's just delivered the ball. His arm is contorted in an extremely violent way, I would say, at the end of his pitching motion straining on his face his right arm and his left arm what is happening it looks like his glove hand has gone perpendicular the wrong direction there is there's a lot of angles here none of them natural using some non-euclidean geometry (laughs) and this is this is dangerous his arm looks like it's about to just rip ouch and as i said scott had a really hard fastball so mid-90s fastball and also a really good split finger pitch. This is a, I think, a, a good display of of his athleticism. Maybe unexpectedly, some of the pitchers that we've had have looked more like they were just slow tossing or <laughs> or playing catch in the backyard. And Scott here is is really going at it. I think his stirrups and shoes look really good. The color on those, orange and black on the shoes, are those pony or Converse shoes? Also, we get to see that nice Expos logo in the background on the back wall. And a little hint of Scott Geralt's mustache. Some of his earlier pictures we'll go into later. He had a much more floppy hairstyle. And, and the in this one, it looks more like he's got a clean-cut haircut. Yeah, good mustache. It's kind of in the sun. It's a little bit hard to see it, but does look good. So great front of the card. Now let's go to the back of 97. And we have Scott Geralt's height 6'4", 205, right-handed thrower and batter, drafted by the Giants in the first round of 1979. Born October 30th, 1961 in Urbana, Illinois, with a home in Shreveport, Louisiana. This card says Urbana, Illinois. I've seen, I think, on his scorecards, it is listed as Champaign, Illinois. These are the Twin Cities, Champaign-Urbana, home of the flagship State University, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, home of baseball physicist Dr. Alan Nathan. Champaign is the larger of the two cities, around 90,000 people. Urbana has about half of that. Other notable Urbanans include Roger Ebert. Previous favorite Garth, Jenny Garth, was born in Urbana, (laughs) as well as Hal 9000. The computer from 2001 A Space Odyssey was programmed in Urbana, Illinois. The cities are colloquially known as Champaign-Urbana or Shambana. And as Carl Perkins said in his song, I certainly do enjoy Champaign, Illinois. That Carl Perkins song was co-written by Bob Dylan. And oddly, Dylan has co-writing credits on two songs named Champaign, Illinois. 
The second is a song from 2010 by the Old 97s. And the Old 97s, kind of a, what, pop country, indie country band? I'd, I'd say an indie pop Americana country roots rock band. Right, the ever popular indie pop Americana country roots rock genre. And that old 97 song sounds nothing like that original Bob Dylan, Champaign, Illinois. Instead, this one was written by Rhett Miller when the band's van was in central Illinois. And he didn't have his guitar on him, so he just was singing songs to the tune of other songs. And he had the melody of the song Desolation Row stuck in his head. And so he wrote up new lyrics to that melody, sped it up, and then the band would perform this song live for a few years but they didn't have permission from Bob Dylan. Finally, they asked him, and he gave permission in 2010. They recorded the song, and it includes the lyrics, If you die fearing God and painfully employed, you will not go to heaven. You'll go to Champaign, Illinois. Now, I like that a lot, David. I like that style, too. You could imagine Dua Lipa doing something similar to perhaps a song like Oriole's Magic or Get Metsmerized and come up with a, a new pop hit. Right. And we I mean, we don't want to get into the legality and the legal questions around Dua Lipa's recent music. But the old 97s went out of their way to get Bob Dylan's permission. So now Bob Dylan has co-writing credits on two songs called Champaign, Illinois. I kind of prefer this old 97 song to Desolation Row, which is probably blasphemy in some <laughs> circles. And maybe it's just that I cannot take an 11 minute song. I'm sorry, Bob Dylan. <laughs> So will I take a lesser version, but sung about champagne? Yes, I will. I like champagne. I like Shambana. A couple more musical acts from Shambana. Uh, Ludacris was born in Champagne before moving to the Chicago area and then on to Atlanta where he made his, his name. They have a thriving emo indie scene thanks to Polyvinyl Records, which is headquartered in Champagne. Bands on the label include Braid, Rainer Maria, Jeff Rosenstock, and one of my favorites, math rock, emo legends, American Football. Their debut album was recorded in Champaign-Urbana, and the, the cover of that record has 704 High Street. This house has become kind of iconic and connected with the band American Football, and now is on a couple of their album covers, and it's become kind of a strange tourist attraction among emo folk visiting the Champaign-Urbana area. Strangely enough, it's a band that both of us like. There aren't that many of those. Uh, but I feel like you're, you've buried the lead when it comes to Champaign-Urbana music acts because I think right away of legendary state fair and karaoke feature, REO Speedwagon. A favorite of mine as a youth, they had songs like Keep On Loving You, Can't Fight This Feeling, and a friend of mine named Duke Tomato the Dr. Duke Tomato, who now tours with Dr. Duke Tomato and the Power Trio, was one of the founding members of REO Speedwagon during his time at the University of Illinois. So they were U of I students, founded this band, REO Speedwagon, went on to have some just enormous hits in the, I don't even know what genre that is, just 80s rock. Yeah, classic rock, although they didn't call it that then. I really focused on the Champaign-Urbana aspect of this because Scott Gereltz actually grew up in Buckley, Illinois, and Buckley only had 680 people when he was born there. <laughs> I didn't think I would find a lot about Buckley, so I focused on where he was born instead. 
Buckley is located in eastern Illinois between Champaign and Kankakee, and the town is famous in eastern Illinois for their adult baseball team, the Buckley Dutch Masters. The team was named after the cigars, and this town has had an organized team since 1860, according to local reports, and baseball is really ingrained locally with folks from Buckley, and Buckley's really a baseball town. I did find this picture here from the the website Illinois HS Glory Days with two players for the Dutch Masters. Look at this look, the look on these guys. Yeah, you open this up and you see a photo from what is definitely the 1970s of our card today, Scott Gereltz, alongside Mark Scheive, we believe that's the pronunciation, playing for the Dutch Masters. And those two would be back-to-back pitchers for the Buckley Loda High School team. And this team had two professional prospects, and they would pitch in alternating games. Because it was such a small school, they didn't initially have a designated baseball coach. They had a basketball coach named Walt Simmons, and he said when he went to Buckley, they just said, you don't have to know much about baseball, just make out a lineup, put one of those guys on the mound. Gereltz was already six foot three in high school, throwing a 93-mile-an-hour fastball with a curve, split finger, and knuckleball. Mark threw a little bit softer, but still throwing 88, 89 miles an hour. And this is a small rural school, but Gereltz caught the attention of professional scouts when he struck out 22 batters in a seven-inning game. Wait, <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, how is this possible? <laughs> this is like his arm on the front of this card. This is uh, defying mathematics, defying space-time and logic. There were a couple of dropped third strikes where ah, so a player okay. reached reached base. So he, he got to strike out more than the allotted number of outs required to finish a seven-inning game. He struck out 22 batters and became kind of a local legend for that. Scouts would show up for both Scott and Mark. And when one was on the mound, the other would play shortstop. The coach of Buckley Loda said that he was scared for some of their opponents. As these were smaller schools, sometimes they were starting freshmen and guys who were like five feet tall. And then you have 6'3", Scott Gerelts throwing 90-plus mile-an-hour pro-level stuff at them. And Simmons was scared for the, the health and well-being of their opponents. So both players end up getting picked in the 1979 draft, which is pretty amazing for a school with only 38 students in the senior class. And they still remain the only two players from Buckley Loda High School in baseball reference. Shivey was picked by the Cubs in the 18th round. He would play a couple years in the low minors before injuries forced him out of the game. And he moved back to Buckley. But we go to the This Way to the Clubhouse at the bottom of the card, and that is that Scott was signed as a first-round draft selection with the Giants June 28, 1979, by scout Richard Klaus. Richard Klaus played 14 seasons in the minors in the Giants system as a shortstop. He then managed in the minor leagues for the Giants from 1951 to 1966. His final stop coaching was in Decatur, Illinois, with the Commodores of the Midwest League, Earlier in their existence, the Commodores were called the Commies, and for <laughs> obvious Cold War reasons, by the time Klaus was there, that name was was changed back to the Commodores. He became a scout for the Giants and served in that role into the 90s. In 1991, he was named the Midwest Scout of the Year, and he passed away in Decatur, Illinois, at age 70 in 1993. 
So Scott signs with Klaus for a $50,000 signing bonus and goes to Great Falls for Rookie League, where he was giving up a lot of hits and walks. He had a whip about two. But if you look at the fun fact on the card, it said that Scott led the Midwest League with 159 strikeouts in 1980. That 159 strikeouts came in 176 innings. He did pair that with almost as many walks, 149. So he's still only 18 years old, but his velocity and lively arm earned him a shot at Double A Shreveport in 1981, where he went 3-8 and with a 4.44 ERA, striking out more than a batter an inning. 1982, he lowers the ERA a little bit, still strikes out 159 in 151 innings, and earns a call-up to the big leagues. Yeah, and I love this, David, when you see a line on the card and it has one game played for a season. I just love that. It's always fun to see. I would suggest for Scott's benefit here that that one game, let's call it statistically insignificant because he had a (laughs) 13.5 ERA. He's still only 20 years old, the youngest player to play in the National League that year. He ends up coming in in the eighth inning of a blowout against the Dodgers, and he strikes out the side in the eighth inning. Unfortunately, in the ninth, he gave up three runs. He did strike out one more, so he had four strikeouts in two innings, but also gave up three runs. So still a work in progress, and he starts out 1983 back at AAA Phoenix. He started 20 games there, had a 5-5 and record and a 4.61 ERA, but the biggest highlight is the second half of the fun fact on the card, and that's that he pitched a no-hitter for Phoenix on August 20th, 1983. I found a note about this no-hitter that it was a seven-inning no-hitter. Again, seven-inning performance against Tacoma. So regardless of the shortened nature of that game, he must have done enough to impress the big league club, and he earned a call-up to close out 1983, even though that record and that ERA weren't quite anything to, to write home about. His performance was much better this time. In five games, he had a 2.52 ERA, throwing 35 innings as a starter at the end of the season for the Giants. He starts out in 1984 at AAA, but earns the call-up in May and splits time between starting and relieving, but then sent back to AAA in June since his ERA was over six. And he wasn't that much better at AAA. And something that I've noticed on his stat lines is that He wasn't really blowing away minor league competition, and he performed much better at the majors. So his his line in 1985 is so much better than anything he really did in the minor leagues. It It was really kind of bizarre. He still ends up getting called back up to close out the season with the Giants, and we really need to talk about his 1984 Donruss baseball card and his look on this card. Yeah, I'm pulling this up on the Jumbotron right now, and you see the 1984 Donruss, Scott Geraltz. He has a bit of a bean dad, long winter's frontman John Roderick look about him with the hair poking out of the sides of his too tall hat, some very big glasses, and a good bushy mustache. He also has a ripped t-shirt underneath his uniform. What is happening there? So maybe because of the what looks like the violent motion of his pitching motion, maybe he ripped right through it like the Incredible Hulk, or perhaps that was just more comfortable and didn't ride up on his neck as he was throwing. And, you know, the sporting wear in the early 1980s not exactly as friendly as it is today. They, they weren't 
bespoke undershirts. Looking closer at the picture of this undershirt, because it is an undershirt underneath this uniform, right? How on earth did he fit his head in that shirt? It looks like the it looks like the neck hole is so small. Maybe that's what happened. His nose ripped a hole right through it. Um, <laughs> but this the hat over the hair is an interesting look. Like when I've had longer hair, I I put it back behind the ears so that it doesn't foof out. It's a good... <laughs> no, this is this is foofed all the way. That's a technical term. It didn't foof out. It's a very good look. I like Scott's look. Early career that, Scott Geraltz is a that's like that's a look. That professional quality foofing of his hair led to him making the opening day roster in 1985. At that point, he still had a 1.68 whip through parts of three seasons. Needs to get those walks under control. But finally, in 1985, he makes some progress with that. Looking at the card, he only had 58 walks and 105 innings pitched. So a pretty big improvement for him, really getting that control. And he ended up being one of the only bright spots on a 100-loss Giants team. He was used exclusively in relief, sometimes as a closer. He went from May 29th through June 28th without giving up a single run. 24 straight scoreless innings. At the All-Star break, he had a really amazing line. Struck out 69 in 65 innings and a 1.10 ERA. He was the Giants' only All-Star this year, but unfortunately he didn't get a chance to feature in the All-Star game. Interesting that he ended up being an All-Star after so many seasons of just going up and down between the minors and majors. He ended up making 74 appearances that season with a 2.30 ERA, 13 saves, and 106 strikeouts in 105 innings, which is very impressive. He also had six blown saves in the second half of the season alone and an ERA over four. So would alternate between hot and cold pretty much. Yeah, his stats end up on the back of the card skewed a little bit by that strong first half. Maybe he was a little bit tired out because this is the the most pro innings that he's had in his career. It's still translated to a 151 ERA plus. So a really great season overall, even if he did slow down at the end of the season. He ends up following that all-star season of 1985 with a pretty good season in 1986 and one where he had his most innings pitch. He spent half the season as a starter and half as a closer He pitched 53 games and 173 innings. As a starter, he had a 3.5 ERA, but in relief, it was 2.29. So the shift to the bullpen ended up making a lot of sense for him. He was effective in both roles with a similar whip as a starter and reliever, under 1.3 in both roles. He went 13-9 on the season with a 3.11 ERA and 10 saves. His strikeouts were a little bit down, 125 in 173 innings. This team was still around 500, but they had some young players. Will Clark and Robbie Thompson had good rookie seasons. Not sure that anyone expected that they would be a playoff contender going into 1987. And for the first half of 87, they were a 500 team. Yeah, they had a pretty good offense. Will Clark had a breakout season that probably should have made him an all-star. Their only all-star was Hackman that we talked about before, and they didn't really have a dominant starter. In fact, none of their starters made more than 28 starts. And despite that, they had the best ERA in the National League. So they just were very flexible pitching roster. 
Geraltz and Jeff Robinson shared closer duties, and Scott Geraltz had a very strong season, 11-7, 12 saves, 3.22 ERA with 127 Ks in 106 innings. So anytime you have more strikeouts in innings, it's a great season. According to his 1988 scorecard, he had a, quote, rip-snorting fastball, which <laughs> that sounds like something you could you need to get checked out. Yes. That would cause an arm motion like the one on the front of this card. He also joined <laughs> starters Dave Dervecki and Atley Hamaker in Bible study on road trips. And in contrast to some teammates and other Major League players and their partying lifestyles, these players were known as the God Squad. With those small-town family values in full effect, unfortunately, uh, Geralt's broke a finger and missed the last month of the season. The Giants won their division by six games over the Reds, and as we discussed in the Hackman Leonard episode, the National League Championship Series was hard fought against the Cardinals. It was a seven-game series, and Scott was not a factor. He, he pitched one scoreless inning and a game one loss, and then was responsible for the last two runs of a 6 to nothing Game 7 defeat. So not really a big player and kind of a disappointing end to the playoff run for the Giants. And in 1988, they didn't really replicate that 87 season. They fell back to 500. Gareltz was still a part of this closer-by-committee scenario. He pitched 98 innings in 65 games and had 13 saves. In 1989, he moves back into the rotation for the first time since 1986. He was the fourth starter, and that seemed to be a pretty good decision. Roger Craig, his manager, said it was a way to keep him focused. He said when Scott was a reliever, he tried to throw too hard. That's why he was so wild. As a starter, he conserves his stuff better, and it turns out he's better throwing 92 miles an hour than he is trying to throw 95. And looking at his stats from 87 and 88... It didn't seem like he was too wild, but Roger Craig is proof correct here in that Geraltz cut his walks in half from 4.2 per nine innings in 1988 to 2.1. He ends up leading the National League with a 1.009 whip, and he also led the National League with a really excellent 2.28 ERA, which, uh, which translates to a 148 ERA+. plus. He finished sixth in the Cy Young voting, 20th in the MVP voting, and what I would say is this most impressive accomplishment for the season is that as a pitcher, he had two triples that season, the only two of his entire career. So I think that's fantastic. Anytime a pitcher is going to hit a triple. The Giants are in first place from mid-June through the end of the season and finish with 92 wins to win the National League West. And he ends up starting the NLCS game one. He gave up three runs over seven innings for a victory over the Cubs at Wrigley Field. He took the mound again in Game 4 and gave up four runs, leaving the game in the fifth, tied 4-4. to The Giants would win that game and also Game 5 to set up the Bay Bridge series. He started Game 1, which is pretty impressive for a guy who, until that season, hadn't really been a regular starter. And they're going up against the Oakland A's, who are heavily favored. They're in their second of three straight World Series appearances. Ricky Henderson, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco against the guy who led the National League in ERA, but who had never been a starter for a full major league season. That 193 innings that he pitched in 1989 were the most of his career. 
the A's scored three runs against him in the second inning and, and then had a Dave Parker home run in the third. And then in the fourth, Geralt's gave up a home run to Walt Weiss. Light-hitting shortstop Walt Weiss, who had three home runs all year, and he just drives the ball to right field. Scott's removed after the fourth inning, down five to nothing. Four of those runs earned. And the scoreline would hold up. The A's would take uh, game one and two. And then going into game three... Game three is one that we remember the most. Bob Welch was set to pitch against Don Robinson. And then 30 minutes before the game started, the Loma Prieta earthquake hit, resulting in about 60 deaths and thousands of injuries in the Bay Area. Images of collapsed interstates and the double-decker bridge where one of the decks had collapsed onto the one below it. Chaos at the stadium. It was so long ago that there's a lot that I wonder what I actually remember seeing and what I remember from highlights I've seen since then. But it was a very important moment in American culture. As a Midwesterner, I had never experienced an earthquake and never really seen anything like that. And to see the camera just cut out, and then all of a sudden you can hear Al Michaels talking, and he's not sure if the broadcast is still going through... It was really jarring, but I guess I couldn't, as a nine-year-old, grasp the gravity of the situation. And then you see the Sports Illustrated cover with Kelly Downs carrying his nephew, who's in tears. It must have been really frightening for a lot of guys who probably also had never experienced anything like that. Just a, a really shocking moment. Game three ends up getting canceled. There was discussion of moving the remainder of the series, whether the Either stadium was safe architecturally, but after 10 days and inspections to ensure the safety of Candlestick Park, the series was back on. Game 3 would be played on October 27th. The starters from Game 1 were now well-rested, and Roger Craig again puts Geralt's on the mound to face Dave Stewart. Yeah, and it went about as well as the first one did, unfortunately. He gives up a two-run double to Dave Henderson in the first inning, in the fourth inning, he gives up another home run to Dave Henderson and one to Tony Phillips before getting pulled. So just a wreck of a series for Scott Gerrells. The A's would win, go on to finish the sweep the next day. The A's were really dominant that year, and the Giants were overmatched in, in that series. Not to mention just the strangeness of having that 10-day layoff a difficult situation for the Giants, a difficult situation for Geralt to be put in as the as the starter in two of those four games. 1990 ends up being Scott's last full season in the majors. He is not able to keep up the magic of 1989. He opens the season with a 1-6 record and 6.88 ERA up to June 1st. The rest of the season, he ends up turning around. He goes 11-5 with a 3.02 ERA from June onwards. And has one big highlight. July 29th, Geralt took a no-hitter into the ninth inning at home against the Cincinnati Reds. Unfortunately, with two outs, Paul O'Neill bloops a single over shortstop Jose Uribe's head. And so in this year of the no-hitter, Geralt had to settle for a shutout. And he was named National League Player of the Week, which is little consolation for losing a no-hitter and with two outs in the ninth inning. Overall, it seemed like Geralt's arm was tired this year. He did throw 182 innings. He finished 12-11, and 11, so turned it around after that slow start. 
and had a 4.15 ERA. 1991, the arm troubles continue, and this becomes the end of the road for Scott. He gives up 14 runs in 19 innings and goes through Tommy John surgery in July, hoping to come back in 1992, and really tries comebacks in 92, 93, and 1995, but never making it past AAA at that point. So closing the book on Scott Gerelts, he had 10 years in the major leagues, all with the Giants, 352 games pitched, a record of 69 and 53 with a 3.29 ERA, 48 saves and 703 strikeouts, one all-star appearance, and the 1989 ERA title. How about in retirement? I couldn't find much specific about Scott's retirement. Couldn't find a lot of news articles or interviews, but he retired to Shreveport, which is where he had played double A. While he was there, as a young man, he met a woman named Kathy, and they got married. And so that's where he decided to settle down. And even in 1988, on the back of this card, he was making his home there in Shreveport. Over the years, he's been a a coach in high school baseball and softball, college baseball, youth baseball, with a program called the Knights in Louisiana. And he helps coach at the San Francisco Giants adult fantasy baseball camp. So a pitcher that had a a couple very good seasons, including an all-star season. What do we think about him now, now that we've looked into his career a little bit deeper? I was surprised to learn that Scott Gereltz is on the Giants' wall of fame. It seemed odd because as we went through those career numbers, they aren't overwhelming. He didn't even have 100 wins or 100 saves, just that one all-star appearance. But he was really solid for the Giants in a stretch from 1985 to 1989, and led them to the World Series. His ERA plus over that five-year stretch was 124. Among pitchers with over 500 innings during that five-year stretch, he's 10th. He's behind guys like Roger Clemens, John Tudor, Dwight Gooden, Oral Hirschheiser, Jimmy Key. He's ahead of Dennis Eckersley, Mike Scott, Dave Steeb. So he's in really good company, and particularly impressive because he was doing both the closer role and the starter role. And successful at both, an ERA champ as a starter and a pretty good closer. He had a lot of potential, but unfortunately, that 1989 season was his peak, and he was 27 years old. By that point, his arm was pretty much done. On his day and when he was healthy, he had an outstanding fastball, and according to no greater authority than Tony Gwynn, Gereltz had, quote, the best splitter I ever saw. Absolutely electric because he could throw it at 90 miles per hour. So if he's got Tony Gwynn saying that about him, that's pretty high praise. When Buster Posey retired after the 2021 season, he joined Matt Cain, Jim Davenport, Robbie Thompson, and Scott Gereltz as the only players to play at least 10 years in the Major League Baseball and spend their entire career with San Francisco. And that's probably why his name is up on that wall. Earlier, we talked about Mark Shivey. Mark Shivey returned to Buckley, Illinois, and Mark Shivey was Scott's high school teammate, drafted that same year. He didn't really make it beyond A ball for the Cubs. He returned to Buckley, and he passed away in 2014 at age 53. According to his obituary, he enjoyed baseball, golf, and playing cards, and when he came back to Buckley, he was passionate about making sure that the Dutch Masters baseball diamond was in pristine condition. That field is Shivey Field, named for Mark's father, Virgil. 
When Mark passed away, the Dutch Masters weren't sure if they should cancel the game that week or if they should go on and play. They hung Mark's number seven on the outfield fence and they played on. And they said, that's what we do in Buckley on Sunday. We play baseball. The Dutch Masters are still going on in the Eastern Illinois Baseball League. Their season starts up on May 22nd at Shivey Field. A sign on the road outside of Buckley says, Home of Scott Gerelts. But also, it's the home of Mark Shivey, and it's the home of this small-town baseball team that's so important to so many people, and really unlike anything that we've seen in this series thus far, something I thought was was really neat. And I avoided talking about Buckley because I didn't know what I would find there. And instead, I found this really neat team, the Dutch Masters, and this neat story about Mark Shivey, uh, high school teammate of Scott Gerelts, and a town that's clearly so proud of both of those guys and, and their local team. In Buckley on Sunday, we play baseball. That's a, that's a great tagline. And what we do on Sunday in the 1988 Tops podcast is release podcast. So hopefully you enjoyed this one. Thank you, David, for the story. And thank you to you at home. If you've forgotten what you started fighting for and think it's time to bring this ship into the shore and throw away the oars forever, then hit us up on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.